0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So we, we maintain that family tie. So I guess in a way it's a self-fulfilling strength hmm. that we don't
1: leave because family's here. And if we do leave, we come back because family's here. Your favorite St. Louis neighborhood is here to stay, and author Lynn Marie Alexander explained what keeps it and its people together.
0: That goes back to the cultural differences and um, different ways that families were managed. For example, different ways of, of cooking, different ways of, of just thinking in some in some aspects. And they didn't want their their daughter or their son to get mixed up with the other. Hmm. But Again, you go to church together, you go to um, social functions together, and you eventually realize they're just people.
1: I'm Sarah Fensky, and this is St. Louis on the Air. Lynn Marie Alexander is an expert on the Hill. She's studied the Italian enclave as an archivist and director of its neighborhood center. She's also a third-generation resident. She lives in the same house her grandparents lived in, and her mother as well. Her new coffee table book brings all of that personal and professional expertise to bear. It's called The Hill, St. Louis's Italian-American neighborhood. And joining us today to talk about it is author Lynn Marie Alexander. Lynn Marie, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So you write in your book that a common sentiment on the Hill is that it can be annoying to live there because everybody knows your business. Does that remain true even today? Yeah,
0: yes it does. Yes it does. But you're 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 missing the second part to that sentiment is that it's also a wonderful place to live because everybody knows your business. <laughs> so when when someone gets into trouble in any way, shape or form, um, the community really does rally around and and raise money or um, help out, you know, if, it, if the house needs help or, or whatever the need is, the community really rallies around it. So, so yes, it can be annoying. Um, it, it teaches us our social graces that mm-hmm. we should be careful to um, not gossip, <laughs> and,
1: but also remind us to be charitable and good to our neighbors. So tell me this. I mean, this idea of everybody knowing each other's business, people going back generations like you do. Is The Hill today still majority Italian? We're,
0: we're losing the majority status. We have a lot of people who are just as passionate about the hill as we are, but are not of Italian descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they contribute to the community just in a different way than than those with firm family roots in the in the neighborhood
1: but there still are so many italians there even if you're losing your majority status i mean it's it's hard for me to think of another neighborhood in st louis that has kept those you know those roots go back more than a hundred years and they're still so strong today why do you think that's the case on the hill and not so many of these other neighborhoods that have become much more diluted by outsiders um, I think part of it is because we tend to stay. I guess maybe we recognize
0: a good thing when we, when we have it. <laughs> but the idea that, that we are, are related by blood, um, and it makes us want to stay with family. So we, we maintain that family tie. So I guess in a way it's a self-fulfilling strength hmm. that we don't leave because
1: family's here. And if we do leave, we come back because family's here. <laughs> I love that. And so many people love The Hill. We asked our listeners for their favorite memory of The Hill. We got some great ones through our St. Louis on the Air Facebook page, as well as on our Twitter. Uh, Mary writes on Facebook, 33 years ago, her first date, she got Amagadi's sandwich and had a picnic and the dessert was St. Louis Baking Company. If that's not a great Hill story, I don't know what is. Here's (laughs) another funny Hill story. Hillary wrote on our Facebook page, once during Hill days as a teenager, we managed to get beer. A cop caught us and made us pour it out sob. So those are some favorite Hill memories. And we would love to hear yours. And also, if you have a question for Lynn Marie Alexander, she really knows this neighborhood backwards and forwards. I have a feeling she can answer it. So feel free to join this conversation. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So Lynn, in this book, uh, sorry, Lynn Marie, in this book, you get into the roots of this neighborhood. And it turns out it was immigrants from the Lombard area who came first. What brought them to this random corner of St. Louis? The,
0: there were um, uh, the mining companies and the, um, the, clay, the clay mining companies went out throughout Europe to, to look for um, people with mining skills. And in, in in that sense, our neighborhood is not different than many other um, ethnic neighborhoods across the country, where you get one small group that comes in, and then they start to send for their relatives and their village mates mm. as well. And so, so that's, that's really why it turned out to be a concentration, um, initially, of the Lombards coming from around the, the villages around Milan. So not all from the same villages. In fact, our church has five bells, and four of the bells are from. Are donated in memory of the, the villages from which they came um, in the Lombard region, mm-hmm. and and so the um, the oh I'm sorry <laughs> go on. what was the rest part of the question Oh yeah no I you actually it answered up it in my
1: belt <laughs> Yeah you answered it perfectly these these uh, residents of Lombardy came here and what's interesting yes. in your book is you explain that then there was almost a second wave but these were Sicilians and an outsider like me might think of this as oh these are all Italians that is not at all how it was perceived within this neighborhood.
0: Well, exactly. And in terms of just geography, you can't get much farther apart um, in terms of geography, culture, um, diet, language, than you do from the Lombard region to the Sicilian region. So the Sicilians are, of course, in in their Mediterranean, and the Lombards tend to be a little bit more sort of Germanic, Celtic. And so as a result, they didn't speak the same language, they didn't have the same diet. And you you mush these two people together under a unified, a newly unified country called Italy, and they're going to have a hard time getting along at first.
1: Hmm. It was interesting to read in this book, you talked about the idea of a mixed marriage. And what you're talking about there is a Sicilian marrying somebody from the Lombardy region. This was This yes. was heavily frowned upon.
0: Yes, it was It was again that goes back to the cultural differences and um different ways that families were managed, for example different ways of of cooking different ways of of just thinking in some in some aspects and they they felt that initially the other they were they were they saw each other as the other and they didn't want their their daughter or their son to get mixed up with the other hmm. but Again, you go to church together. You go to um, social functions together, and you eventually realize they're just people. You know, so the idea of the other did did really get diluted once, especially once um, people started intermarrying between the different cultures.
1: So that intermarriage did happen to this day. Uh, do uh, lifers like yourself? Do you have a clear sense of who's a Sicilian and who's from Lombardy?
0: No, not really. I mean, we joke about it, but if push came to shove, if I were to say, I won't do business with that person because they're Sicilian, no, okay. that's not the case at all. And in fact, um, actually, if you'll notice that, that the partnership here is between myself and I am Lombard and Joe Gregorio, who is Sicilian. So we managed to, to do just fine. Um, he wrote the forward and helped. Help structure the book. So we managed to do just fine.
1: <laughs> so this book is a testament. These two halves of Italy have come together here in St. Louis. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so before I move on from this this question of these two different regions, there is something I'm just dying to talk to you about. I have never read about this anywhere else. And you, you talk about this in your book. Um, and this is the idea that we talk about hill speak, this, this sort of Italian phrases that get tossed around. You say there are two different forms of hill speak, the pigeons and the hatchets. Walk me (laughs) through what that is. Okay. Well, it it has to do
0: with um, the way a non-native speaker of the dialect hears the dialect. So for example, uh, the Lombard dialect tends to be coo, has a lot of coo to it that sounds like they're saying coo in the way that they pronounce their vowels. And so as a result, they became the pigeons. And the Sicilians tend to sort of chop the words a little bit and so because they chop the words they got the nickname hatchets. And and again that 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 is um, more along the line of teasing as and as opposed to actually really meaning something. But you know, this um, it's one of the things that endears us to our character on the hill.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, I loved hearing that explanation, and as you describe it, I can kind of hear those two different accents in my head. It's it's such a such a great way to describe it. One of the other questions I frequently hear when I take outsiders to the hill, just to show them around, I always like to show them this was Yogi Berra's house. This was Joe Garagiola's house right down the street. Um, people who are not from St. Louis, they will say, "Well, why do the houses look like they look? These shotgun style houses that are so um, sort of small in the front, and then they go back so long. And you get into this in your book. What was the original um, reason for that design? uh, It was an economy design, and they were charged by the, the,
0: the street front width. So if you made your house narrow, you could make it long and still get a decent sized house. And it also then allowed you to build a one room and then a second room and a third room and a fourth room as you uh, earned money and as your family grew. So it gave the ability to move your house backward, if you will, with each new room addition. Um, My own grandparents' home, the one that my mom lives in now, actually has two additions. It was two rooms and then a third room and then a fourth room was added on. Hmm. And... And so that so that's that was the design. And when when it was kind of um, set in the plots that way, they stay that way.
1: Hmm. It's interesting. Like now we're seeing such development in the Hill neighborhood. There are such bigger houses that are going in and in some cases much fancier than these original shotgun style. But they still keep a, a pretty narrow frontage. As you say in the book, once you're locked into that kind of plat, you're you're pretty much stuck with it.
0: Yes, unless you can get two plots side by side, which some people have managed to do, but um, rarely
1: do they get three and definitely not four plots (laughs) side by side (laughs) for a big house. (laughs) Do you get a sense that with all the construction that's going on now that the character of the neighborhood is really beginning to change?
0: That is really an opinion in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. Um, Some people believe that, that change is good and that updating the housing is a good thing. Um, Some people do get nostalgic for, for the old shotgun houses. And there's an argument to be made on either side. And I'm not prepared to get involved in that argument. (laughs) (laughs) You know better. (laughs) I do.
1: (laughs) My guest today is Lynn Marie Alexander. She is the author of The Hill, St. Louis's Italian-American Neighborhood. It's a coffee table book out now from Reedy Press. There's some wonderful archives that you drew on here and and some wonderful photos. This is not just the tourist highlights. Um, Tell us some of the things you found yourself getting into in this book.
0: One of the things, the stories that that I really have enjoyed listening to, and some of these these mostly men have now passed, though a few are still alive, are the clubs that they formed. So in the 1920s, um, as a way starting in the 1920s and going all the way until um, the last club is alive and well, but they're they're around retirement age. But what they did is they formed different athletic um, teams, if you will. So they would have the, the, one at the north end of the block competing with the south end of the block and then they'd go and complete, compete with the block next door and they came up with these wonderful names, the hawks and the wildcats and the, the nightingales and the pelicans and the vikings and, and they, they sought, uh, they created clubhouses and they got corporate sponsors, to, to give them uniforms. We even have an, uh, uh, an example of one of the uniforms that they had that was donated to us at the center. And they would play each other, in, in, essentially in, in intramural. But what a great way to keep these young guys out of trouble, <laughs> you know, when, they, um, when they're, they're getting to be frisky and you need to keep them occupied so that they don't get mischievous. And, but what, the beautiful part of that is that they maintain then lifelong friendships. And there's a great story. They had this big reunion in the 1980s, and they had it at the electrician's hall, and they sold 600 tickets, which sold out right away, mm-hmm. it was for all of these clubs. And they immediately packed that. And so another 200 shoved their way in and crashed the party. Whoa. So the fire chief is like, oh boy. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't care. They're all smooshed in there, but they were having the best time. And could you imagine just having a big old family reunion like that? Well, so you know, I just love the spirit.
1: In this era of, of social distancing and, you know, you kind of cringe when you see somebody getting too close to somebody, that just sounds like a nightmare. But we have to remember that is before they had a, a, a virus to worry about. This was back That's when right. you really could have Thank a party you. like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you you deal with the community and, and these sort of organizations. I mean, this book just has some great detail about that kind of thing if you're interested in, in the community that these immigrants formed and, and the many permutations that took. You also get into some more serious things. Um, you deal with the neighborhood's battle to stop I-44. The plan was to sever a big part of the neighborhood. A hundred homes would have been on the other side of the freeway. Another 100 homes would have been knocked down, and the Hill won that battle. But what I was intrigued to read about in your book is is you say it left some real wounds for some of the older people well, who lived through that.
0: Yes, well, the Hill is still separated by uh, Highway 44, so we we did lose the the over 90 homes. And then there's, there's the significant section on the, on the north side of Highway 44. The, the beauty part was that we were able to get both a, a walking bridge, a pedestrian bridge, as well as a, a driving bridge across so that they could, um, they could get back and forth to church and to the shops and that kind of thing. But the wounds, um, you know, it's, when I'm talking to the older people, 70s, 80s, 90 years old who remember what their house was like and they remember having to be forcibly moved from their home and that really stays with them. And it's, it's, it's almost, painful when they talk about it. I mean, I almost start crying oh, <laughs> when yeah. they talk about it. So, um, But I think that also speaks speaks to, again, the attachment that people have to this neighborhood and the passion that they have for wanting to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, yeah, that was such a traumatic event. You said in some cases, yes. um, you know, the government bought them out. They ended up having to pay rent on homes they had owned. Were they, for the most part, able to stay within the neighborhood or, or did people end up sort of ending up in, in the county or in different parts of town?
0: Well, there's, there's two parts to that. The first part is they some, some were able to stay. Um, a, a majority were able to find somewhere either on the hill or nearby, mm-hmm. and then the rest did end up out in the county, especially in the Afton area. But the other thing that, that it did do, which was an unexpected blessing, was that it rallied the entire community around this incident and around this, this obstruction into the neighborhood. And that was at a time when most urban uh, areas were, were starting to experience blight and starting to experience fallout. And so the, the highway came through, and though it was devastating it was also a backward blessing and that it, it taught the neighborhood what what it meant to be to fight for something and to win at least win um a partial victory mm-hmm. and
1: and the importance of working together in preservation of what they had so is that, so was, is that really the roots of of the neighborhood organization there that's so strong Yes, the Hill Two Thousand Neighborhood Organization. Yes, um, that was
0: started by um, Monsignor Polizzi. He was our parish priest at the time, and, and he did his master's degree at St. Louis University in community development. That's, a, that's I'm using that in a general general way, in community development. And he saw he I mean he was very um, very bright and could foresee the future of what was going to be happening if action wasn't taken, and so not only that was one of his Projects and he was extremely successful at rallying the community. And another of his projects, for example, was um, a, we, there was a drive-in theater that was going to be built just at the corner of Hampton and Wilson. And and again, that was uh, um, it presented probably too many problems and not enough blessings hmm. for the neighborhood. So so they were so he was able to rally the community and and, and prohibit that company from building a drive-in theater.
1: Hmm. So the neighborhood really sort of took a strong hand in guiding its own destiny.
0: Yes. Yes. And I I think that's what makes the neighborhood so successful is that when it comes to things like that, um, people do get involved. And, and they do have, um, at, at the basis of all of their actions, they have the preservation of the neighborhood at heart. Hmm.
1: So the Hill has fought so hard. And, and as you said, it's still almost half Italian. It's done a great job of maintaining that character that makes it so special. But at the same time, it's not fully immune from the forces that have hit all cities in America. It was kind of sad to read. You wrote that up until like the 70s, um, people didn't have to leave the neighborhood at all. You could get everything you wanted right there. When did that start? Start to change. Um, I think it, it, that started to change. Honestly, I think that
0: for me, um, when there, the national grocery store <laughs> mm. went in, and I thought, "Oh my goodness gracious, this is a, a chain store and it's right here on the edge of the hill," and you know, and it just didn't seem right because you, you have we have so many different shops that we would go to for for our, all of our needs, and to have it seemed intrusive in a way. Mm. So the the, the The small shops couldn't compete with all of the larger um uh, chain stores and box stores that are around the hill, they're not in the hill mm-hmm. but around the hill and it's that's just a fact of life that's happened in every small community across the country.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the most heartbreaking part. I don't think there's anything that the hill could have done to stop that. It's just what happened in the twentieth century. but still, looking back at this book where you've gathered details about these businesses and and what they did, it's just it is hard to think about. Um, what's been lost? Do you feel that as you walk around your neighborhood? It's so thriving today, but do you still kind of hear the ghosts that were once there? Sure, of
0: course of course you do. Um, you you I'm, I don't hear Italian as much as I used to. Mm. Um, just just walking down the street and I, I, I'm so bad. I used to have my grandpa teach me how to say I understand in Italian because <laughs> what would happen is that when when the older women when you'd walk by them on the street they'd switch to Italian because they knew you didn't know it. <laughs> so you'd tease I'd be them. And tell them Yeah, I'd be naughty and tell them I understand and they'd just give me a dirty look, like cheeky kid, you know. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, that's a great memory. Um, But look, I'd be remiss. We just have a few minutes left here today, and I've been talking so much about the history of the Hill and some of the the community of the Hill. I've been ignoring the thing everybody loves most to talk about when it comes to the Hill, and that is all these places to eat. We asked our listeners about this, and boy, people have so many favorites. Uh, Ian writes on Twitter, he loves Joya's Deli, Antonino's for toasted raviolis, Gelato di Riso for gelato, Shaw Coffee, it has an old-time cafe feel. Richard writes on Twitter, a meatball sandwich from Adriana's. I dream about it still. Lynn Marie, I know this is a a very impolitic question, but I've got to ask you, what's your very favorite place to eat on the Hill? My very favorite place to eat is my mother's kitchen. Ah, that that is okay. Now you're being political. (laughs) What's a place you'd want to recommend to our listeners if they have just one meal on the Hill? Where should they go?
0: I cannot say that because as the director of the Hill Neighborhood Center I get that question all the time. Yeah. And and I really can't choose one over the other. Um all I can do is guide are you interested in pizza or salads or sandwiches or pasta and then kind of help them in that direction but I I would I would never
1: say one over the other because they're all very very good. That's like choosing your child, right? <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) Right. So in addition to all the restaurants in the Hill um, these days, which remain such a good visit, um, you know, whether you're getting dining out, uh, whether you're getting it to go during this pandemic, or, um, you know, if you want to sit on a patio, uh, these places are still open. There's another place on the Hill that's relatively new that I think is well worth a visit. Can you tell us a bit about how Piazza Emo's came about? Oh, the the
0: Piazza, yes. Um, It is uh, uh, across the street from the St. Ambrose Church on Wilson Avenue, and it was an em- it had been an empty space for as long as I can remember, and so several families and um, people with means and commitment to the community joined together, and they sourced the fountain from uh, Italy. So that the marble is actually from Italy. The fountain itself was carved there. It was brought in and, and installed by Italian craftsmen, hmm. and the. The cobblestones and the benches and all, all of that was um, donated and organized. And so it, it, became, it becomes almost like St. Ambrose in that St. Ambrose, the, the entire community chipped in to build the new St. Ambrose after the first one burned. And so in this sense, the entire community has the opportunity to fund the piazza as well as enjoy it. And it, it is beautiful. It is just a beautiful place to go and to sit and enjoy. Uh, during the summer, have a, have a nice um, gelato, and in the winter, have a nice cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And it's just a great place to, jo- to, to enjoy.
1: So I know you can't choose between these eating establishments, but it's fair to say that if people wanted to go visit St. Ambrose, which is such a lovely church and, and so yeah. important to this neighborhood, they could go there. They could go to the piazza. And from there, it sounds like there's there's any number of options where they could enjoy their time on the hill. Absolutely, yes.
0: Yes, there are. And there's, there's quite a few fun shops as well. And they're, they're a nice delight and surprise. If you're going expecting just food, there's other places to visit um, that you might be able to take home with fun trinkets.
1: Well, there you go. That's a, that's a great sales pitch and a great reminder um, to visit the Hill. Lynn Marie Alexander, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing from your book. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. The tales
0: at choosewood.com.